John chapter 16, and we're in verse 5. John chapter 16, verse 5. As we'll be looking at being of good cheer uh, this morning. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our relationship with you, that you're our dad, you're our heavenly father, that your character is immutable, uh, without change, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you for your mercies that are new this morning. Thank you for allowing us to have VBS and to reach out to our neighborhood here at the church. We give you glory and, and praise for that. And as we spend time in your word, would you pour out your Holy Spirit and lead us and guide us in truth, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. On Thursday, we had the opportunity to take our kids to Waterworld up in Westminster. My in-laws live in uh, Westminster. Also, my wife's sister was in town with her kids, and so it was a little family uh, reunion. And us Cartiers, the six of us, my wife and our four kids, we're adrenaline junkies. We're always up for the adventure. So the bigger the ride, the better. But we also uh, had our nieces and nephews with us, and my nephew Leland, he's uh, eight years old, we convinced him to go on a ride called the dinosaur and it was the first ride of the day and he gets onto the raft and he was just absolutely terrified I think he really thought the dinosaur was going to come out and and eat him so he had his superman hat on and he had it over his eyes and he got down at the bottom of the raft and he didn't look up the whole entire entire ride so I felt pretty bad but we couldn't have that be his last experience right so we're like, okay, let's do another one. So we went to a ride called The Storm. And this time he didn't have his hat with him. So he put his hand in his head and put his head down at the bottom of the raft. And he didn't look up the whole time. We got to the end of the ride and I see little Leland put his head up and he goes, that was awesome. Let's do it again, right? <laughs> and his attitude totally went from it's the end of the world to being of good cheer. And I see that with the disciples, is Jesus is preparing them for his crucifixion and his resurrection. And he's saying, in the midst of this sorrow, I'm going to turn your sorrow to joy. So we're going to focus on being of good cheer uh, this morning. Let's begin in verse 5 of chapter 16. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus has declared, I'm going away, but they're not asking, where are you going? But sorrow has filled their heart. It's hard to imagine all the disciples were going through as Christ was declaring, I'm leaving you guys, you can't come with me. They've done life with Jesus for three years every day, and they're trying to process all of this change and exactly what it means. And verse seven says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Jesus says, guys, this is good. Even though I'm going away, it's going to be to your advantage. Because unless I depart, the Holy Spirit, the helper, is not going to come to you. So our first reason for us to be of good cheer, for the disciples to be of good cheer, is the help of the Holy Spirit. This is quite a statement that Jesus would say, it's more advantageous for me to depart so that you can receive the help of the Holy Spirit. 
If we were to have a decision, if it were up to us, if Christ could come live in our home in his bodily, physical form, or to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we'd probably say, I'll let Jesus move in. You know, I'll I'll invite Jesus to move in. That'd be phenomenal to, to have Christ physically living in my home. But Jesus says that it's better for us to have the Holy Spirit. And why is that? Because it's an internal relationship instead of an external. When Christ died and rose again and ascended to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes in the disciples, comes upon the disciples. They're baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's when their lives really changed. That's when their lives really became a witness of Jesus Christ because they're not trying to do it all on their own. Up until this point, it's an external relationship with Jesus, and it's wonderful, but it's going to go internal. Another advantage of the Holy Spirit living inside of us is God is with us wherever we go. As Christ has limited himself in his bodily form, in his earthly life, he's at one place at one time, isn't he? Is it the Sea of Galilee or Jerusalem? But now the Spirit of God lives inside of us and always goes with us. The key to the Christian life really is the help of the Holy Spirit. Jesus in this section from chapter 14 to 17 keeps emphasizing the helper is gonna come to you. The helper is gonna lead you and guide you and grow you and use you in this relationship with me. And that causes us to be of good cheer. Here's the role of the Holy Spirit. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So three things the Spirit is doing. The first is the Spirit convicts the world of sin. For those of you that know Christ as your Savior, you can probably remember back to when God was drawing you unto the gospel, there was probably a conviction over sin. I remember when God got a hold of my life, I grew up in a Christian home and had some level of relationship with the Lord, but it wasn't very deep. When I was in high school, I really became aware of my own sin in a deeper way. But in that moment that I was becoming aware of my sin, God was also showing me his love and showing me the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit of God convicts us of sin and shows us our need for Jesus. So in that moment that we're feeling the weight of sin, we're also being introduced to the answer for our sin, that Jesus died for our sin and rose again so that we could have forgiveness of sin. Maybe that's right where you're at this morning. You'd say, I'm not sure if I have a relationship with Christ. I don't know that if I've received him as my savior, what does that mean? But you've started to have a reality check when it comes to your sin. And that weight of your sin is upon you. You're saying, man, what do I do with this sin? And in this moment also, you're becoming to realize Jesus is the one who died for your sin. So unless we're convicted of sin, we won't see our need for a savior. Also, the Holy Spirit's convicting us of righteousness, of God's righteousness, of our unrighteousness, convincing us the need for for Christ's righteousness. The Holy Spirit is bringing judgment, specifically judgment upon Satan, because the ruler of this world is judged, speaking of, of Satan, and the Holy Spirit's role is in play of that judgment. 
we need to allow the Holy Spirit to do his job in our lives and in the lives of others. Sometimes we want to do the convicting of sin, don't we? We go, man, you really need to be convicted of your sin. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. We can share truth and we can love, but ultimately it's going to be the Holy Spirit that convicts of sin, showing someone their need for Christ. In verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus wants to teach more. He wants to instruct more, but the disciples can't bear it now. There's too much that they're trying to to process. So Jesus doesn't force feed. Aren't you thankful for that? God's patience in our lives where he's like, okay, Eric, this is what you can handle right now. I'm going to teach you this right now, and then I'm going to give you a little bit more, and I'm going to give you a little bit more. And when we're serving others, ministering to others, we don't want to force feed them. We don't want to just cram it down their throat whether they want to hear it or not. When our kids were younger and they're sitting at the high chair and I'm feeding them, which was always a a fun process, sometimes I would overfeed them, right? They're so little that they can't express like, dad, I've I've had enough and we're doing the airplane game, open the hangar and before you know it, there's that urge to regurge and it's coming out. It's like, oh, I think I, I... overfed you. Sometimes Amber would be like, hey, honey, I think you're overdoing it. They've, they've had enough, right? And God doesn't do that in our, in our lives. And we don't want to be in that position of force feeding someone. And when they're giving us those clues, hey, I've, I've had enough to have that patience to say, okay, I'm going to wait on, on God's timing. Verse 13, however, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. Jesus says, there's more things I want to teach you, but the spirit is going to come and pick up where I left off the spirit of truth and is going to lead you and guide you into truth. We see the spirit of God speaking through the word of God. The word of God becomes powerful as we're relying upon the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God using the Word of God in our lives. I want to continue to encourage you as a believer that you can understand the Bible. Don't believe the lie that you can't study the Scriptures for yourself and understand it because you have the best teacher living inside of you. That's the Holy Spirit. And as you open the Word and ask the Holy Spirit to teach you, ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate and enlighten the scriptures, God's going to be faithful to do that. You might not understand everything in that chapter that you're reading and those verses that you're reading, but there's going to be verses that stand out to you and underline those verses and meditate upon those verses. If you're in a position where you're saying, you know what, I've got to have a pastor in order to understand the word, or I've got to have this podcast in order to understand the word, or I need this devotional in order to be fed. I want to challenge you that all those things need to be secondary. And what needs to be primary is the word of God, you and the Lord, open it up, read it, and allow the spirit of God to to speak to you. And then enjoy getting taught and being learning from others. Whenever there is a revival in the church amongst the people of God, it always happens when there's a movement back to the word of God. 
There's a revival that happens in my life when I move back to the word of God. And maybe it's getting back to the word of God or it's discovering the word of God for the first time, but you do have the best teacher living inside of you, the spirit of truth who doesn't speak on his own authority, but shares the things that he has heard from Christ. One of the things that is really fascinating to me is the Trinity. And it's a little bit of a difficult concept to explain and fully understand. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, but one God. So the Bible doesn't teach that we serve three gods. We serve one God. But inside of the Trinity, there is roles and responsibilities. So they're absolutely equal. But the way that God designed even his very character and nature is one of order. How so? we see Jesus always submitting to the Father. So Jesus isn't doing his own thing. He's always submitting to the Father. The Father's always complimenting the Son. And then the Spirit's coming underneath the authority of Jesus, sharing what Jesus has shared with him, always pointing people to Christ. Now, why do I say this? Because in our culture, we misunderstand roles and responsibilities. We think, well, if there's roles and responsibilities for men and women inside of marriage, that someone has to be inferior and someone has to be superior in that equation. But in the Trinity, they're complete equals. And in marriage, you're complete equals. You're joint heirs in Christ, but inside of being equals, there's still roles and responsibilities. Ephesians 5 gives role to a husband and a role to a wife. So look at that trinity to be that example for roles and responsibilities. God's given men and women roles and responsibilities inside of the church. And that's really controversial in our culture. But when we look at the trinity, we go, oh yeah, we see this. There's a complete equality, but inside of that equality is roles and responsibilities. And who's getting ripped off? I think men and women are getting ripped off. Because God designed us, he engineered us for roles and responsibilities, but yet society is saying there's no roles for men. There's no roles for, for women. And if you try to assume those roles, then, oh my goodness. So that's just for free. Okay, that, it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think we see it from verse 13 with the spirit is not speaking on his own authority. In verse 14 He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So Christ is in this place where he is giving it to the Spirit, and the Spirit is giving it to the disciples. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. The Father giving to the Son, the Son giving to the Spirit, the Spirit giving to disciples. Verse 16, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me because I go to the Father. This confuses the disciples. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. They're talking amongst themselves What does this mean, a little while? Talking about the Lord, but not talking to the Lord. Easy mistake for us to make. It's good to talk about the Lord with each other and try to process what he's doing in our lives, but sometimes we forget to talk to the Lord about it. Hey, God, I'm really confused about this. 
Would you help me and help me to be able to have wisdom in this particular issue? Then they said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We don't know what he's saying. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, are you inquiring amongst yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Love the heart of Jesus. Even though the disciples are not coming with their question, Jesus senses that they desire to ask a question, so he goes to them. And he pursues them. In verse 20, Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your joy will be, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Jesus is speaking of his crucifixion. When he's crucified, the world's going to rejoice. They're thankful that Christ has been killed, that Christ has been crucified. But in that moment, sorrow fills the hearts of the disciples. But God is going to take their sorrow and turn it into joy. Verse 21, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, You know, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. The second reason that we're able to be of good cheer is because the resurrection trumps our sorrow. The resurrection conquers our sorrow. The disciples are going to be in this intense mourning, but when the resurrection takes place and they see Christ and they behold Christ, then that sorrow is turned into joy. Jesus uses the analogy of a woman giving birth and and during this time of labor, it's very difficult and there's a lot of sorrow, but the sorrow is leading to the joy of the child. And once the child is is born, there's such rejoicing over this, this child. And the resurrection does that for the disciples. The resurrection trumped their sorrow. And the same is true for us. We think of the sorrow that we have in life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings joy into that sorrow. We think of death and the pain of losing a loved one. If they're in Christ, because of the resurrection of Jesus, death doesn't have the final word. They're more alive than they've ever been. Joy enters into that sorrow. We think of the sorrow of our own sin. But thankfully, because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus comes and provides forgiveness and freedom of sin and gives us joy in the midst of that sorrow. We think of the tragedies that we go through in life, the heartbreak that we go through, and a crucified Savior understands the sorrow that we go through. He's a man of sorrow. He's acquainted with grief, but he's also risen. He rose from the dead. And he walks with us in our pain. He's present with us in our pain. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we too are going to rise unto eternal life. He's the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning he's the first of more to come. We're going to receive a glorified body. So our sorrow was turned to joy because of the resurrection of Christ. And this is a principle for us to know. It's a truth for us to sink our teeth in to go, man, there's sorrow in life. And there's, there's pain in life. But God takes this sorrow and he's able to turn it to joy. 
He's able to have the, the last word in the midst of that sorrow and use that trial in my life. In verse 23, and in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. In that day, when Christ is risen, the disciples are going to see Jesus and not have any questions. It's going to become crystal clear. I wonder how many questions that we have now for the Lord in this life, when we see him in eternal life, we'll go, I don't have any questions. I don't have any questions. I'm looking forward to that, seeing the Lord and beholding the Lord. It may be when we see him and behold him that it's just like the disciples. We go, it's all cleared up. Jesus directs them to the privilege of prayer. The third reason to be of good cheer is the privilege of prayer. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. In this section, this conversation, Jesus brings this up several times with the disciples of praying in my name. He's wanting the disciples to understand the importance of their prayer life as he's preparing them for his departure. Fellowship with the Father was so important to Jesus. We see him staying up all night to pray on several occasions. He'd get up before the sun was gonna rise and pray and have that time with the Father. It was so important to Jesus that the disciples, as they're watching his life, come to him and say, would you teach us to pray? They don't say, would you teach us to do miracles? Would you teach us to preach and teach? We want to preach and teach like you. They realize that the secret of Christ's life, the real depth of his life was the fellowship and the prayer. And they said, Lord, would you teach us to pray? What if we made that our request before the Lord? Jesus, would you teach me to pray? Would you help me to understand this this privilege of my prayer life? Would you teach me what it means to pray in your name? To pray in the name of Jesus, there's great authority. When we come to the Father based upon who Jesus is, we're not coming in our own merit or our own righteousness. We're coming based upon who Jesus is. So there's authority in praying in the name of Jesus, but there's also conformity. What do I mean? is we're not praying for our will. We're praying for his will to be done. We're praying in accordance to the character and nature of who Jesus is. This is who I know Jesus to be revealed in the scriptures and I'm praying according to the name of Jesus. And then there's this promise as we pray in the name of Jesus that he will give it to us. In verse 24, until now you've asked me nothing. Isn't that interesting? Nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive it that your joy may be full. One of the ways that the disciples are going to be of good cheer is to have joy is through prayer. Saying, I want you to ask in my name and when you receive it, then your joy is going to be made full. We experienced that just a little bit this morning as we rejoiced in what God did in Vacation Bible School. As we rejoiced at what God did at fir tree apartment of linking up Donna with this refugee from Afghanistan. But we've been praying about those things as a church, and those are in line with the character and the nature of Jesus. God loves this woman from Afghanistan and wants her to know his love. And it caused our hearts to rejoice, didn't it? When I heard that testimony last night, I was like, God, you, you're so good. You're, you're moving and you're working in, inside of this. 
Have you ever prayed about something and then God answers and you're shocked? You're like, I really didn't expect that God was going to answer this prayer and that he was going to move in this way. But this is a way that God encourages us as we're praying in his name and he answers those prayers. We go, oh man, my joy is made full. My father heard my, my prayer on this. I've been praying for this lost person and God's doing a work in their life. I've been praying for my marriage that it would honor the Lord and God is working in it. I've been praying my singleness that I'd be used by the Lord and God's answering that prayer. And so part of the way we're encouraged is through our prayer life. In verse 25, these things I've spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I'll tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. So Jesus isn't saying that he's not going to pray for the disciples. We know from Hebrews that he ever lives to make intercession for us. But his point here is to say, I'm bringing you into direct access with the Father, and the Father loves you. (laughs) The Father loves you. Why does the Father love you? Because you've got your act together? No. The Father loves you because you love me. The Father loves you because you believe in me that I was sent from the Father. Aren't you glad that that's why the Father loves us? It's like, oh, you believe in my son? That's enough for me. You're you're with me. You trust him for salvation? Oh, you're you're in Christ, and I, I love you. I hope as we discover more about prayer that we realize it's not just about getting things accomplished. It's about relationship with with the Father. I think this is what I've been most encouraged in and challenged in in this section of John personally, is to really discover what does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus, to go deeper into this fellowship with the Father. It's so important to Jesus, and I'm like going, Lord, I want to understand this. I want to develop this more in my relationship with you. Verse 28, I have come forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, see now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. We get this. That's clear communication. Even though they don't fully understand the process of the death and the resurrection of, of Christ. Verse 30, now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. So the disciples give this declaration of faith, this expression of faith. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? So you're expressing faith, but do you believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come that you'll be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. Guys, I know you believe, but as I'm crucified, you're going to scatter and I'm going to be left alone. But I'm not fully alone because the Father is with me. The Father is with me. And we see our last reason to be of good courage in verse 33. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. 
So fourthly, we're to be of good cheer because Christ has overcome the world. Jesus promises to them, in me, you may have peace. There's a peace that comes from God that the world cannot provide that only comes through Jesus. In me, you will have peace. The source of that peace is not on our circumstances. The source of that peace is not the economy. It's not financial peace. It's not a political peace. It doesn't come from any country. It doesn't come from our health. It comes through Christ. In me, you will have peace. And oftentimes we're searching for that peace outside of Christ and it leaves us empty and it leaves us longing. Jesus says there's a peace that surpasses understanding that will guard our our hearts and our minds. Whatever the circumstance, whatever the difficulty in Jesus, we can experience his peace. We can enjoy his peace. In me, you shall have peace. Then he gives this command. He says, I want you to be of good courage, though in this world you will have tribulation. Let's get that set. I think a lot of times we have this expectation that somehow if we engineer the pieces of life just right, we'll get an exception on this tribulation piece. We'll get an exception on this trial piece. And then we get extremely let down. We're like, why in the world is there trial in my life? Why in the world is there tribulation in my life? Because Jesus promised that there would be. In this life, it's going to be turbulent. In this life, there is going to be tribulation. There's no way around it. You can't engineer tribulation outside of this life. But, but be of good cheer. Why? Because I've overcome the world. Jesus is saying this statement prior to him going to the cross and his resurrection. He says, I have overcome the world. My death and my resurrection is going to overcome the world. Through the death and the resurrection of Christ, we have eternal life. And because of eternal life, we're able to be of good cheer. We're able to claim that position and say, man, because Christ has overcome the world, I can have this attitude of being of good cheer. Not on my circumstances, not on the things that are going on in this world. If you know Christ as your Savior, you're closer to heaven than you've ever been before. Don't worry about aging, right? Instead of being like, oh, I'm so bummed that I'm getting older, should be like, I'm closer to heaven than I've ever been before. It's the 17 year olds that I feel bad for, right? You know, they got a long ways to go, right? Closer to heaven than we've ever been before. Jesus promises that he's going to come back for the church and rapture the church, catch the church up in one moment to forever be with the Lord. We don't know when that's going to happen. We're to live in anticipation of that. But we do know we're closer than we've ever been before. We're closer than Christians who lived before us. We are the generation that's the closest to the rapture of the church. Now, if God waits and doesn't come back in our lifetime, then guess what? The next generation is the closest that they've ever been. The point is, heaven is getting closer than it's ever been before. And we set our hearts on a pilgrimage. We, we set our hearts on heaven and say, Lord, I am thanking you for heaven. I'm thanking you that you've overcome the world. So in the midst of my trial, in the midst of my difficulty, I am choosing 
to be of good cheer. It's not the absence of pain, but in the presence of pain, in the presence of sorrow, to be able to say, I am going to be of good cheer. One of the commands that's given to us throughout Scripture, it's a theme that God gives to us, is to rejoice. Over and over again, you'll see God calling us to rejoice, to take joy in the Lord, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Why would God have to tell us that over and over again? Because our tendency is to be like Leland on the raft, isn't it? We're going through the storm of life and we're like, oh, this is the end of the world. I'm gonna die. What kind of family let me go on this ride and encouraged me to do this? God, how could you? You gave me a Superman hat and I'm gonna hide in it, right? And we get to the end of the ride and we're like, woo, that was awesome. God had a plan all along. He was working in the midst of this. When we get to heaven, we're gonna be like, woo, that was awesome. Thank you, Lord, this, this is amazing. I know how this ends. So we can go through the storm of life Instead of our head down, our head lifted up and saying, I know how this ends. This does seem scary. It does seem devastating. But this doesn't have the last word in my life. The resurrection of Christ has the last word in my life. Now, having said that, I face days of a discouragement. I face days in the midst of this battle where being of good cheer doesn't win out. My selfishness wins out. And I wake up and I'm thinking about Team Eric all the way, and the fact that I'm tired, and I haven't got enough coffee, and I don't like that I have to do this today, my circumstances need to be different, and get caught up in that, and I end up in a place where the theme of my heart is grumbling and complaining. And then there's other days where I choose, and I make the choice, in spite of the circumstance, to focus on the Lord, and who He is, and realizing that I'm going to heaven, and choosing to be of good cheer. And I hope for more days of the latter than the first. I hope more days of choosing to be of good cheer. But may we be reminded and be challenged. We get to choose. Our circumstances don't choose for us. We get to choose. I know some of you are facing some very difficult realities in your life this morning. And it is a step of faith. It is challenging to say, in spite of how I feel, I'm going to choose to be of good cheer. For the disciples, they are facing very bad news at this point from their perspective. And they're wrestling with the words of Christ, am I going to choose to be of good cheer because Jesus has overcome the world? Let's stand together and let's pray this in. Father, you know us, you know our hearts. You see the days that we struggle and the days that we really get overcome by our circumstances. Would you help us as we read of the help of the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, would, would you help us? Guide us into truth. Give us the strength to see the bigger picture. We thank you for heaven. We thank you for eternal life. Thank you that our names are written in the, the Lamb's book of life. Thank you that we're your children, your sons, and your daughters. Thank you that you never leave us or, or forsake us. 
as we leave this place and get back to the battle and the difficulties and the challenges, would you help us to rejoice in the midst of those challenges? So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.